Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Aaron Mack. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, August 20th. On today's show, we'll talk about how genealogy tests like 23andMe are being used to solve cold cases, including one in Washington State that recently ended in an actual conviction. While it's obviously a good thing to bring murderers to justice, it's also important to make sure that people who use DNA tests know that their genetic information could be accessed by law enforcement. For more on this issue, I'll talk to Nila Bala, a former public defender who's now Associate Director of Criminal Justice Policy at the R Street Institute. After the interview, my colleague Shannon Paulus will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The use of genetic genealogy to solve cold cases first came to prominence last year with the arrest of the Golden State Killer, a serial killer active in the 70s and 80s. Investigators matched crime scene evidence against DNA profiles from a genealogy website and found a distant family member of the suspect. Since then, use of the forensic technology has skyrocketed. It's estimated that a majority of European Americans can now be identified by searching through these sites. Just last month, a man named William Talbot in Washington State was convicted for two murders committed in 1987. It was the first ever conviction made with the help of genetic genealogy. In this case, law enforcement officials use a database called GEDmatch, which is where people can use DNA samples to trace family trees. GEDmatch gets a lot of its data from DNA tests conducted through Ancestry.com and 23andMe. But people who use these sites don't always know that they could be signing up to be part of a law enforcement database. Here to talk through these concerns is Nila Bala, Associate Director of Criminal Justice Policy at the R Street Institute, which is a think tank whose mission is to find solutions to complex policy problems. Nila is also a former public defender. Nila, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, could you first explain to us how this technology is used by police? Sure. So essentially, there usually has been a cold case where there was DNA at the scene, but law enforcement wasn't able to figure out who that DNA belonged to because it didn't match the government databases. So this DNA has been sitting and waiting, and now we finally are at a moment where we have the technology to perhaps figure out who that DNA belongs to. So what law enforcement has been doing is taking that unknown DNA sample and uploading it to an open source database like GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA. And what they're doing is in uploading it, they're hoping that it matches, even partially matches, a user account that's already in the system. So assuming they get a hit to somebody's DNA that's been uploaded, they can, you know, make a decision that, oh, this might be a second cousin or an aunt or some distant relative and work with a genealogist to create a family tree that might help them figure out who that DNA belongs to. 
once they think they've narrowed in on who the possible suspect is, then they might do some old fashioned detectives, uh, you know, investigation work and follow that person around, (laughs) wait for them to discard a piece of DNA, like a cup that they drank from or a cigarette butt, and see if that DNA matches the original unknown sample that they had, you know, from the cold case. So if they make a hit, if they make a match, then they will go ahead and probably arrest that individual. So how has the use of technology uh, spread in the last year or so since the Golden State Killer arrest? It's definitely proliferated quite a bit. Um, So since then, approximately 70 suspects have been identified through the technology, which means that they've been 70 cold cases where DNA has just been sitting, um, waiting to be processed. And finally, we have a database that's large enough where, um, you know, they've been able to try to find a distant cousin, like I said, and then narrow down to the suspect. Um, I will also mention that this technology can be used to exonerate people as well. And, And very recently, Uh, The Marshall Project uh, reported on an individual who was actually exonerated using the same technique that I described earlier. So as a former public defender, how do you feel about the introduction of the technology into the court system with the recent conviction of uh, William Talbot? Um, So my feelings are mixed. On the one hand, obviously, as an officer of the court and, uh, you know, someone who's seen firsthand the criminal justice system and how it works, it's obviously a good thing when we're able to, you know, quote unquote, catch the bad guy and catch the right person. Um, And I think this technology is incredibly powerful. But my concerns uh, are twofold, I guess, with the technology, despite its possible great benefits. The first has to do with uh, mistakes that can be made. And of course, we know there are mistakes that are often made in the criminal justice system. And even with something like DNA, which seems infallible, seems like a kind of technology that wouldn't be subject to human error, it is because at every step of the process, from collecting the DNA at the crime scene, um, all the way to sort of the last step I described, which is kind of collecting this possible suspect's DNA, um, and then of course, testing it, storing it, um, all the processing, those are human beings that are involved at every step. And so, mistakes can be made. So that's always something that we have to consider. And even if mistakes aren't made, the second sort of concern I'd bring up is the concern of privacy. As a public defender, of course, I'm thinking about um, the individuals who are arrested and who are suspects. Um, And of course, you know, we have an innocent until proven guilty maxim in this country for a reason. But too often, those individuals and their rights can be thrown by the wayside. So I guess I want to dig into your first concern about um, misidentification. So what kind of collateral damage can um, occur when you misidentify someone? So one of my fears is if um, an individual who is not actually the suspect has their DNA uploaded to one of these sites, We know that, you know, the Internet lives forever and it's possible that the wrong people could get a hold of this information. Um, There have been estimates now that 90 percent of white Americans can actually be identified through one of these databases. So even if you have not uploaded your own DNA, somebody related to you might have. And so um, a lot of people's personal information, and I can't think of anything more personal than DNA, um, is exposed. And so if we're exposing the wrong people, that can have 
you know, significant implications. There's also the collateral consequences, even when we, you know, quote unquote, expose the right people or we, you know, get it right, which is, um, you know, right now, JetMatch and Family Tree DNA, these open source sites are saying that they are restricting these types of searches to only the most serious offenses, um, like homicides and rapes. But I, I can imagine a not so distant future where this technology expands to even more um, sort of run of the mill offenses, even misdemeanors. And, and that's a day that I really fear because that's a day when um, quite a bit of privacy might be be taken away from us. And the collateral consequences are when something is out in the public, I mean, anyone can get it, insurance companies, jobs, um, educational institutions. And I, I worry that this information in the wrong hands could be really, really damaging because DNA is not like a credit card. It, it's not something you can change if you're, you know, if your identity gets compromised. It's, it, it is you. It's definitionally you. Yeah. So you just mentioned like the types of cases that this can be used for. Um, so as you mentioned, GEDmatch, uh, it used to be that they could only, law enforcement could only use their data for murder and sexual assault. Uh, now they've mm -hmm. recently included robbery, aggravated assault, manslaughter. So it, how do you think about what kind of cases this should be used for? Do you have any clear lines in the sand for you where um, you think this really should or should not be used? Yeah, uh, I think that before GEDmatch changed its policy, that was probably overall a better policy. It was a little bit more clear cut to just restrict it to uh, homicides and sexual assaults and rapes, things like that. Um, the issue with kind of including aggravated assault or assault in general is that assault is a very broad term and it can actually include offenses that are not quite as violent as you would think um, an assault, you know, would be or should be. Even a pickpocket who's, you know, trying to get their hand kind of out of the purse or whatever, um, as long as there's some kind of use of force, um, and that can be defined in a lot of ways through different state statutes, that could be an assault. And so we're really expanding the umbrella of offenses under which, um, you know, GEDmatch could be used. And I just want to point out that it's, we're kind of living in a strange world where, you know, the owners of these um, databases, like Curtis Rogers, for example, of GEDmatch, is in control of deciding what offenses their technology can be used for. Uh, I mean, the reason that assault is now included goes back to a case where um, the law enforcement officers in an aggravated assault case came to Curtis Rogers and said, hey, like, would you make an exception to your policy? And he said, okay. And we can see how this could be a slippery slope of people coming to these private individuals who own corporations and asking them to be able to use this technology, which is why I'm personally in favor of you know, us thinking through a policy as a democratic society, as a, as governmental agencies, um, and drawing those lines in the sand in a very public and clear way, rather than having, you know, an individual that kind of holds all this power and makes decisions, perhaps even on a one-off basis. I think that's, that's very dangerous. And I think, um, when individuals upload their information to GEDmatch, they're agreeing to that information being used in a certain way. And then when it's used in a different way, because they change the policies all of a sudden, I think that that is also potentially a pretty serious invasion of their privacy and, and what they consented to in an informed way. So besides the policies set by these companies, are there any other policies either set by lawmakers or law enforcement uh, agencies about how you can use this uh, DNA 
The law is overall fairly underdeveloped and silent on this issue. And I, I do think that we'll probably see some legislation um, or some, you know, court, you know, decisions in the coming years. Um, I will say that Maryland and D.C. have um, prohibitions against familial DNA searches. And Maryland in this past legislative term, or I guess it would have been the term before this most recent one, introduced a bill trying to forbid any, um, you know, searches of this type. Um, but other than that, like I said, the law is pretty silent on this. And we'll have to see what happens. Yeah. So when we're thinking about these these policies, um, I mean, do you think the Fourth Amendment protection from unreasonable searches is applicable to this area of uh, genetic genealogy? I think it could be. I think mm. that's going to be a really interesting area of development. Um, and the reason why I think it could be is is because of the, the recent Carpenter case. So b before the Carpenter case was decided by the Supreme Court, and just by way of background, the Carpenter case is a case about cell phone um, location tracking. So essentially, the law enforcement agents in that case uh, were able to get four months of locational data, because as you probably know, cell phones ping off of cell towers. And assuming you have your cell phone with you, you know, you can get a pretty good picture of where you've been. Um, and so in the Carpenter case, the state was arguing that you don't need um, any kind of warrant um, because those are all places you would generally, you know, be able to be seen in the public. And if you've in the prior cases, if you've been in the public, the idea is that you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in where you are. But the Supreme Court found that we're kind of in a, in a new sort of age at this point where the amount of information is just unbelievable. It's not something that the previous courts would have really thought through. And so because of that, they found that this is something that you would need a warrant for, you know, just the, the sheer totality of the information that a cell phone can now tell a person about um, that individual. And so I do see DNA as being a somewhat analogous situation. Um, and so where prior to the Carpenter case, if you had exposed your location to a third party, um, like a cell phone provider, that would mean that you had given up your right to privacy. And so the analogy here is if you've exposed your DNA to an open source database like GEDmatch, would you have lost your privacy? I think a court would reasonably be able to say no, because you still have a reasonable expectation of privacy that that information is going to be used in a certain way, which is to say when people upload their, their um, DNA to these databases, they're usually doing it to try to find family members and not necessarily to solve these crimes. And then the added fold with DNA is that even if I, for example, am consenting when I put my DNA on one of these websites, my second cousin who's also linked and has similar DNA to me is not consenting because they don't even necessarily know that their DNA is going to be on these sites. So there's uh, what we kind of call a fourth party consent issue um, because there's this individual who doesn't even know that their um, their their privacy is being harmed. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that you were seeing some movement among lawmakers to sort of regulate this technology. Um, do you predict the same sort of uh I don't know, backlash or scrutiny from the courts? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the courts, like I said, will 
be having to look into this issue. In the um, Talbot case, which you mentioned earlier, the two parties basically just agreed to treat this whole process as just an, a tip that was given to law enforcement. And so the, the issue of the genetic genealogy didn't really come to light and there weren't any challenges um, by the defense attorneys. But it will be um, interesting to look at future cases. Um, the first case where there's, there was actually a challenge recently occurred in Virginia. Um, Jesse Bierke, I don't know if um, you or maybe your listeners are familiar with this case, but he was um, identified as a suspect in a 2016 rape. Um, and the defense attorneys did bring up this argument that I kind of just articulated, which would be under the logic of the Carpenter case, whether, um, you know, this should also have required a warrant. And the judge in that case rejected that argument that the search was unconstitutional, um, saying that, you know, the only issue was his own DNA, which was abandoned property. Now, I think that that reading is probably too narrow because there were a lot of steps before they, you know, narrowed in on this particular suspect, Jesse Bierke, um, which also should be looked into. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Nila Bala, Associate Director of Criminal Justice Policy at the R Street Institute. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So a lot of the families of cold case victims said they've been able to find closure thanks to genetic genealogy, and it's definitely a, a boon to public safety. How do you weigh the benefits of the technology with uh, privacy concerns? Yeah, it's definitely a boon. And like I said, um, I'm not of the mindset that we should restrict this technology altogether. I think it's powerful technology. It is crime-solving technology, and it's definitely been huge benefit to those cold cases and the family members of those individuals. I just think that there should be process in place and there should be transparency in place so that individuals in the public know what to expect when they are um, you know, using services like 23andMe and then uploading their DNA. So there's a few things that I mean that I think that means. One is um, information and digital literacy for the public. I also think that there should be a clear process where there is a magistrate or a judge um, looking at whether this is the kind of case and situation where all other possibilities have been exhausted in terms of investigation techniques before um, the uploading of, you know, this unknown suspect's DNA onto this um, database. Uh, I think the techniques should generally be confined to violent crimes. and. Um, Along with, like I said, a warrant, the sites like GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA, I would prefer them to require some kind of opt-in process to having law enforcement being able to use that individual's um, information and even more informed consent rather than something just buried in a disclaimer that most people aren't going to look at. Um, the last thing I'll mention is when law enforcement uploads an unknown suspect's DNA to one of these databases, they have the option of 
of restricting that account so that it can only look out and try to match um, other accounts that have been made public. And so essentially, it's like a privacy setting that law enforcement can use to make sure that the DNA that they're uploading is not able to be seen by other people, only they can look out and see um, and try to find relatives. And I think that logically they should be using that option, but there's no rules or regulations saying that they have to. And at least if they use that option, it would it would protect that unknown suspect's privacy uh, um, a little while longer. And then they could decide, you know, if they were able to get a hit or not, what their next steps would be. And then finally, um, just like we have expungement statutes to remove criminal records, um, there should be some kind of requirement to expunge in a way or remove these DNA accounts after they've served their purpose. And I think that would be another way to minimize the harms of the privacy violation. Uh, you also mentioned opt-in earlier. So GEDmatch recently decided to have users opt in to having their data available to law enforcement rather than having that be the default setting. Um, some genealogy experts say this kind of severely restricts their uh, ability to use the technology. Um, you said it was a good move. Uh, what do you think about these concerns about uh, restricting the usefulness? I think those concerns are fair, but here's here's where I come from. I mean, I have to think that when individuals uploaded their DNA, they may or may not have known the way law enforcement was going to use it. And before the disclaimers and warnings became more clear, and I applaud Jeff Match, I think, for taking that move and trying to make things more clear for their users, we can't assume that individuals in the past uploaded their DNA knowing law enforcement was going to use it in this way. I've heard genealogy experts say that um, a lot of individuals um, uploaded their DNA specifically for the purpose of law enforcement using it. And in that case, I would hope that they would be able to go back um, and you know opt in. I certainly think that GEDmatch is fair in making the process as easy as possible to opt into law enforcement being able to use it. But I do think that a default of opting out is a good one because otherwise we aren't protecting people's privacy. We're basically saying and forcing them to exposing their information without their knowledge and without their consent. Um, so we've been talking about a lot about policies, um, things that police and companies do that aren't on the books, but... Um, our attempts to uh, regulate their use. What sorts of laws do you think should be put on the books around this technology uh, when legislatures look into its use? Uh, should it be warrants or more oversight over um, uh, how it's being used? What, what sorts of things are first steps for you? Sure. Um, yeah, I think a warrant requirement would be a great first step. Um, that would at least mean that a third party, a judge or a magistrate, was looking through an application and making sure um, that it was appropriate and that law enforcement, you know, has detailed steps in place to manage the privacy violation in essence that they're creating. So along with a warrant requirement, I mean, I would want to provide some sort of guidance, um, whether it's through like a public education campaign or even education for judges and law enforcement about this technology and how it works and when they upload DNA, like what they're what they could possibly be exposing an individual to, um, so that there are sort of best practices put out in place. Um, and I'm not sure all of this needs to be specifically legislated, or it could be through policies. 
And the other thing that should be noted about all these cases is, for the most part, this is being used on cold cases, right? So it's not like um, there's an emergency situation where we have to really quickly rush and figure out what's going on. Um, in most of these cases, the offense took place in the 70s or 80s, um, and we have a moment. We can take a moment and make sure that due process is followed um, before we solve the crime and, and our society benefits as a result. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and then we'll continue our conversation with Nilabala. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay rights, now! Gay rights With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. <laughs> and activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Um, so what should people generally be thinking about when they do these DNA tests uh, for family trees or um, genealogy? So there's two steps to it. Um, the GEDmatch and family tree DNA, these open source databases, don't actually directly collect DNA and test it. So you have already at this point sent in your saliva to a place like 23andMe or Ancestry.com or the many um, companies that are now cropping up that are doing similar service of, you know, you sending in your DNA and getting some information back, whether it's health related or ancestry related. And so with that first step, I would still caution people to make sure you read um, what information you're turning over. Uh, 23andMe, for example, does have um, like a research component so you can share your DNA for research purposes. Um, you just might wanna be careful about um, the sharing of your DNA in general, making sure you understand what purposes it could be used for and who really owns that data at the end of the day. And then when you upload your DNA to an open source database, again, um, I would just caution users to be extremely careful um, whether the benefits of hopefully finding maybe some relatives is worth the drawbacks of potentially exposing your information online. And then, like I said, um, 
thinking about the different um, privacy options that the site itself offers. Now, an individual who's looking for family members is probably not going to choose kind of the lookout option, which I described earlier, because that would make their account private. And assuming they're actually interested in finding people, they probably need to make it public. So um, just, just know, I guess, what you're getting into, not just for yourself, but for um, family members, relatives, distant cousins who certainly haven't consented because your DNA does actually expose people beyond yourself. I see. So even if you yourself haven't committed a crime, which I assume most listeners haven't, um, you're just you have to think about what this could mean for your extended family. Is that the biggest concern there? Exactly. I mean, in an ideal world, perhaps a person would have a conversation with their family um, and let them know that they're doing this because it can potentially, like I said, put their information out there as well. Um, and the the issue is, of course, if you if you m many Americans who have been surveyed on this issue say like, hey, if one of my relatives did a really heinous crime, I want them to be found and prosecuted. And that's reasonable. But just considering the fact that sometimes law enforcement doesn't get it right and sometimes law enforcement is maybe going to use this on cases that are not quite as serious. Um, it's something to consider and think about before you put your DNA online. So looking to the future, uh, what are your major fears for the technology as it advances and becomes more popular? Um, you mentioned insurance companies and other private uses. What sorts of invasive applications are you looking out for? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that as soon as we create any kind of database like this, which government has access to, we have to think about what we're doing um, in terms of a free democratic society. And it may not be you know, completely obvious, but when, you know, when government or companies for that matter, hold a lot of information, they also hold a lot of power and we can't predict exactly how that's going to be used. But even the, the concentration of power in and of itself, I think is something we should question and worry about. Um, DNA has a lot of predictive power, unlike the DNA that was in the CODIS database, that law enforcement database that I mentioned earlier, um, the DNA that you put into these open source databases exposes far more information about you. CODIS, um, you know, it's just a couple of loci of DNA that's non-coding, meaning it doesn't determine what you look like or what diseases you get. Um, but this DNA is, is far more extensive because of the way they do the testing at 23andMe and Ancestry.com. And so it can be used for really scary things that, I mean, sound like science fiction now, but might not be in the not so distant future of discrimination, um, of deciding that, you know, someone has a disease and therefore shouldn't have certain opportunities or looks a certain way and shouldn't have certain opportunities. Um, all the biases and discriminatory tendencies that human beings already have, but perhaps amplified uh, because of the predictive power of DNA. Um, those are things we should worry about. Nilla, thanks so much for talking with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to take one final break, and then Shannon Paulus will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. Okay, now it's time for Don't Close My Tabs. Joining me now is my colleague Shannon Paulus, who will be hosting the show next week. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Aaron. 
Uh, so what's your tab for this week? My tab is Got It On Depop, uh, the app that has Gen Z hooked on thrifting. It's a feature by Matthew Schneer at New York Magazine. And it's about this um, kind of eBay slash Instagram app. The layout is sort of Instagram-ish with a grid of pictures, but then everything in the pictures is uh, for sale. So you can buy clothes and shoes and accessories and Anyone who's under maybe 23, 22, who might be listening to this might be saying, no, duh, because <laughs> this app, according to this feature story, has become very popular among teens for buying and selling clothes. Interesting. Yeah, I actually uh, downloaded the Depop app after I read this. Um, it's uh, It's got a lot of good stuff on there. Yeah, I was sort of, I downloaded it too after I read it. Um, and I've been trying to go on kind of a social media break, but it felt cool to discover something that was sort of delightful, like a platform um, that felt interesting and not like a huge pain to explore and felt separate from my social world Mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, actual Instagram doesn't. I see. Yeah. So it's kind of an escape almost. Yeah. It's sort of like, and this shows how unconnected I am to Gen Z or maybe even parts of the millennial generation, but it, it almost felt like in the way that, you know, when you got got a Harry Potter book and you're like, oh, other people know about this, but like I'm having this very individual experience with it. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like that feeling. And it was sort of eerie to have that feeling looking at a social media app. Huh. Um, but yeah, and it, it sort of felt like that reading the piece too. Like, oh, the stakes here are very clearly very high for some of the characters who are like trying to make a living selling stuff on this app, but I don't have anything to do with it. Uh, have you bought anything or sold anything on the app yet? Well, I just downloaded it an hour ago. Okay. Um, I almost bought a bag. Oh, <laughs> um, but I decided I didn't. I don't need any more stuff right now. But <laughs> I feel like the next time, like I want, like a maybe not a work bag, but maybe this is more of a going out bag type situation. Um, I, I would look at it. You can search for brands and stuff. I think the overall aesthetic is way too young for me. Mm, fair enough. What about you? Um, yeah, I saw some, um, like, Bape and Supreme stuff on there. I mean, they're still crazy expensive, but a little less mm-hmm. than I think on eBay, which was interesting. I also found this shirt uh, that has, like, Mr. Clean on it that I actually might buy. Uh, <laughs> like the Cool. Yeah, it's like 20 bucks, which uh, I think is a pretty good deal. So check in next week to hear about our Depop addiction. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> our rooms are going to be a mess. So what's your top this week, Aaron? <laughs> So uh, my tab is this kind of odd Facebook page called Every SpongeBob Frame in Order. <laughs> so basically, uh, this page is just trying to post every second frame of every SpongeBob episode uh, in order, as the name would suggest. Uh, it posts 25 frames per hour, and it's now on episode 9 of season 2. Uh, it has almost 500,000 followers, which is a somewhat sizable but not huge community. Um, but the people are just kind of bizarre and heartwarming they just kind of analyze frames of spongebob together uh so a lot of times a frame will get attention because it looks you know kind of sexual which can be funny sometimes but i think it's even more interesting when one like brings back a lot of memories for people there's this one frame of mr crab sitting in like a basket of french fries that i personally remember uh from when i was like i don't know like 10 or so and apparently everyone else does too and it's kind of like yeah this this sharing of like nostalgia that uh I think the internet's really good at cultivating. Um, there's also this one of uh, Sandy the squirrel crying because she's homesick that I also like very vividly remember. 
That's kind of crazy to see again. So I know I think Facebook has this rep right now that it's the super basic platform that your parents use. Uh, but I feel like this idea was something that really could have only worked on this platform. And it just made me feel like if Facebook had been built around this sort of quirky, inventive stuff, I'd spend a lot more time on it. What about this project makes you feel like it would only be home on Facebook and not, say, um, a good idea for a single topic Tumblr or an Instagram grid? Yeah, I I think that the kind of formatting is kind of better for a, a Facebook scroll. Um, I think it could get unwieldy on other platforms like Tumblr or uh, even Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. I think that uh, the kind of discussions it promotes are, uh, it, you know, they have all these like disparate discussions for every frame, and I feel like that works best on Facebook. I mean, I, I suppose it could have been possible on Tumblr, but I, I think it looks really appealing here. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny, like, I don't have any connection to SpongeBob, really, but I can remember, like, I'm my brain is flipping through some of the frames of the opening of Arthur oh. right now. And I can, like, yeah, it, it does resonate that, like, a specific frame could bring back memories, like, even the way a smell might. And it's right. kind of lovely that it's preserved on the Internet like that. Yeah, th- I mean, there might even be an Arthur page. I know there's pages for other shows like this, too. There's Tom and Jerry. There's like Ed, Ed, and Eddie, um, Simpsons. So, yeah, I think this is like a genre that's worth uh, exploring if you have a certain pet show from your childhood. That's so wonderful. The internet <laughs> is lovely. Yeah, it can be. <laughs> it can be. <laughs> All right, that's our show. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Aaron T. Mack. Thanks again to our guest, Nila Bala. And thanks to everyone who has left a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks also to Danielle Hewitt, who engineered for us in D.C. We'll see you next week. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is at most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. 
We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay rights now! Gay rights! With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. <laughs> and activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.